Welcome to 1991 Movie Rewind, a podcast where we watch and review every movie released in 1991, from the all-time greatest classics to the critically panned and everything in between. We rediscover forgotten fan favorites and uncover hidden gems as we explore the depths of direct video Join us in our celebration of the fun, unique, and diverse films of this highly underrated year. This week, we watched My Own Private Idaho. joining us on 1991 Movie Rewind. In my own private Idaho, Mike, played by River Phoenix, is a street hustler living in Portland. Mike's best friend Scott, played by Keanu Reeves, comes from a well-off family, but left it behind to also hustle. When Mike gets information that might help him find his long-lost mother, Scott joins him on the journey that takes them to places neither expected. Screenplay by Gus Van Sant, directed by Gus Van Sant, and premiered at the Venice Film Festival on September 4th, 1991. Have you seen My Own Private Idaho before? Um. Maybe? <laughs> I'm gonna say parts of it because the first half really confused me. Okay. <laughs> All I remember is him trying to find his mom. All, the, all the lead up and the stuff with Bob and everything is... Yeah, that, I was like, what the hell am I watching? Because I don't remember any of that. Yeah. So I'm going to say no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not fully. It, it, I've never seen it either. Gus Van Sand is, is a director who I have a huge blind spot. Um, I've seen Goodwill Hunting. I've seen Psycho. That's it, I think. I think that honestly might be it. Um which is two very opposite parts of the spectrum. Uh, it's it's always been on my to-watch list. My own private idol and Drugstore Cowboy have both been on my like to-watch list, but it just never happened, so I got that taken care of now. I think this is going to be a hard one to talk about. It's like... I was comparing it to Drugstore Cowboy because I remember seeing that movie, but I only remember parts of that movie, too. And then it also reminded me of another movie, and then I looked it up. I'm like, oh, even cowgirls get the blues. Okay. I watched that movie as well. So all three of those movies are like, this movie, Drugstore Cowboy, and even cowgirls get the blues. They're all like jumbled up as one movie, I guess. In your mind. In my mind. Okay. Because I remember watching these movies, but they all have like similar themes. And they're I mean, all, it, like, they're all... within a year of each other. Like, they all came out, like, within a couple of years of each other. And, and they're all Van Sant. So, yeah. I mean, I think that probably makes sense. And from what I was reading, it seems like this movie is really an amalgamation of three other script ideas that he just kind of mushed together. So that's why you have, like, some of the stuff with Bob and the Shakespearean influence because he planned, I guess, to do like a Henry the Fourth yeah, adaptation and he just melded it into parts of this and then he had two other script ideas that he kind of just um, all, all around like the same I didn't get <laughs> That's it why was... I was like, what am I wa the first half I was like, what am I watching? And then the second half I was like, Oh, I know 
what this is now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, it's really just stuff with Bob where the Shakespearean influence comes in. Yeah. Because up to that point, everyone's having a quote-unquote normal conversation with contemporary dialogue, inflections, etc. Then you have this guy, Bob, who comes back into town. And he is... I don't know if he's like a leader of the the homeless people the homeless. of like the hustler of all the like teen kids yeah or that, if he's just like their hookup for drugs that's what I, I was like is he their pimp it doesn't seem like it because he's also very destitute and he's like blaming them for his problems with drugs you know, like he says, so they're to all Scott like enabling each other. Came along, yeah. So he's a, just kind of like an older gentleman who's there, who's, who's been around longer and kind of like mentoring the the youth, the new street. Imparting his wisdom, I guess. <laughs> but also, everyone sees Kids, through his bullshit at the same time. Yeah. Um. So he comes in, and that's when all the Shakespearean talk comes into play, and. It's off-putting. Like, at first you think it's just Bob and his eccentricities, but then everyone else around him does the same stuff too, and you realize that, oh, it's the entire scene that has this influence or or that's trying to do this thing. And it's not delivered well by probably anybody but Bob. I think William Richard Reichert, Mm -hmm. uh, he's mostly a director, not really known for acting. He's like a writer-director. Um, he, I think he delivers the lines extremely well, but when you have all of these younger kids, you have like Flea, Mm -hmm. who's in there, you have River Phoenix and you have Keanu Reeves, those are the ones who are primarily interacting with him. They don't really get the handle on the cadence, the inflection, and that's a big problem with Shakespeare in general, but, you know, this is not true Shakespeare. This is just inspired by it. It's just, you know, it's um, thesaurus city. Mm-hmm. And probably in iambic pentameter. I'm not, you know, I'm not... Yeah, I'm no Shakespeare. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not uh, expert. Couth. I'm not couth enough to, to know. Um, so it's it's weird. It's off-putting it's tough to follow at times as well for me uh and then you know and then they get the they they get the information that leads them out of portland and and on the road to, to idaho and it stops again until they return back to portland later on with bob and whatever I don't know the play. I don't know Henry the Fourth. It's pretty much what um, Keanu Reeves' character is like: rebellion and kind of just taking over at the end. It's like this That's... rich person who's rebelling against his wealth, but then at some point, sort of acquiescing in a sense and just taking power. Yes, and it's like once he found out that he was getting his father's um, inheritance or whatever, he was like, okay, well, I don't have to do... Well, he even says that, like, when I turn 21, 
I'm going to get my father's. I mean, he knows that it's happening all yeah, along. Yeah, he knows, it's not but, that, but his father like dies. For him. It's not like... Didn't his father die? Yeah, his, his father, father died. died but I, I think they're unrelated. But he, yeah, so it's like he was going to get it anyway, mm-hmm. but his father died. So, yeah, he gets the inheritance. Like, and I don't he gets know. the company or whatever yeah. the dad owns. But, I don't fully know. Yeah, his father's the mayor of... Oh, he's a mayor? Yeah, because when they ask... When Scott is in that, when they, the, this is when they see, this is way near the end, when they see Scott in the fancy restaurant and he's Uh like schmoozing with people, they're like, so you're going to go into politics as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, and he's just like, oh, I don't know. But yeah. I guess that makes sense because yeah, mayor versus king in the play. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's there's fortune, and he knows there's fortune, but at the same time, he's sort of turning his back on that whole thing. For yeah, he's a while. turning it, and he's getting away with it because when they, di- this, we're just going back and forth. When the cops go to where they all hang out, that abandoned building. Mm-hmm. It's like a rundown hotel. Yeah, where all of the uh, hustlers stay, and. You know, there's, like, a point where it's Mike and Scott, like, they're pretending that they're having sex or whatever, mm-hmm. and the cops just kind of, like, awkwardly watch, and then he, they, like, have a back and forth, and Scott goes, well, you can fuck off now, because they, everyone knows who Scott is. They, yeah. The cops know that Scott is the son of the mayor of Portland. Yeah. So he can do whatever. Yeah, and also they're like they're completely unfazed by what he's doing, and also at the same yeah, time they're like, "Hey, yeah, your just... dad's been looking for you. He hasn't seen you in months, so you know, can you go just see him?" Yeah, and he's like, "Fuck off!" And it's like, okay, goodbye. They're fuck like, off. "All right." Yeah, because he probably does this all the time, and they're just like, "Oh, this fucking kid again." Yeah, <laughs> and they're so, just I mean, they like not into it. Yeah, they're just like unfazed by everything. Yeah. yeah. But for the rest of these kids, it's a necessity. Scott's yeah. just sort of like a hanger-on who's trying to understand that lifestyle. And I don't know, I guess there's some of that in Portland as well. I'm not sure if that's supposed to be a specific commentary on how certain kids just run away. Even though, you know, even if From they have their, means, yeah, even if, they, just they because go they're to live probably... the street life because they see it as like hip and cool to do. That's what I figured when... Like, the interesting parts is when they're being, they're talking, I don't know who they were talking to, but that one, I don't know. They were talking to a couple of people who I'm assuming are legitimate kids on the street. Yeah. The part where they're in the diner Mm -hmm. and they're being interviewed. I don't know who was doing the interviewing. Probably, I mean, off camera gossip, but like you're talking story-wise, I think they're just sharing stories. Oh, okay. You know, like... It just seems like they were being interviewed by someone. But yeah, because there's no, there's no back and forth. It's it's a it's a one shot on them. It's not presented as a dialogue. It's presented as a monologue. It's like just show, tell me your life on the streets. Yeah, like how, what was your first trick, basically? Yeah. Like how did you get I started mean, in doing this? And they were like real. They look like they were real homeless teens. Yeah, the and they sounded like real stories <laughs> with very sincere delivery. Yeah. 
which I I I liked that part. It was I thought that was interesting, and it kind of reminded me of the movie Kids. That's why sure. I kind of wanted to watch that movie because I haven't seen that in a while. But, yeah, I've not seen that either. That's that's a movie <laughs> that I think we've talked about once before. Where I, at the time I thought it was a real movie, like I thought it was a documentary, until like late in late in the runtime. <laughs> I thought the kids was like a documentary. I didn't realize these were like actors because I hadn't seen any. Well, of them it's like kid, like real kids from the streets of New York. Right, but they were all they were all hired actors. Yeah, you know what I mean. But, but a I lot of them were kind of like for a long time. Oh, okay. A lot of them were playing versions of themselves. Sure. Um. So yeah, in this you have that as well. Then you have. Mike and Scott, the two bigger name actors with River and Keanu, and then you have Flea, who is, you know, well-known. We've seen him before in Motorama, but, you know, he's... He does a lot with Gus Van Sant, um, mm. in general. Um, and then, yeah, re- most of the rest of the kids, I think, are just plucked off the street. I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong. Um, but it has a lot of that authenticity to it. There's, I don't know, it's it's weird because it doesn't, it obviously doesn't glorify the situation by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, your opening introduction to Mike is him falling in the middle of a highway, suffering from a narcolepsy slash anxiety attack or whatever it is. Yeah. Um... And then, like, the next time you see him, he there's a lot of scenes where it seems like he's, like, drugged out or he's acting like a junkie, but you really do not see a whole lot of actual drug use from him. It, 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 they, it was, they like, the one... They presented it's mostly, like, narcolepsy-related. Yeah, it was just that one part where they stole drugs from Bob, and you right. see Mike snorting in the other room. That was it. Yeah, but a lot of the, a lot of the stuff, I mean... You know, he's in Portland, he's looking at this woman who's across the road, and you see, like, you know, it's basically like the vertigo effect, where you have the, um, I think, I think River is, like, standing on some sort of a dolly, because he's, like, pulled closer to the camera while the rest of the background stays put, mm. so it gives that slight disorient, uh, disorienting feeling, and he's looking at, at this woman across the road who he recognizes as someone who looks like his mother mm-hmm. and then he starts to like yeah, anytime out. like he thinks about his mom or family stuff it's that's when he starts to go into these episodes yeah so i guess the, the way mo- the movie presents it is like this this stressful event of reliving something to do with his mother is causing him to basically fall asleep and he he's maybe like, seizure or yeah he bit, sees but. it there's parts where you see him having a seizure that's why i'm like i don't know narcolepsy i guess yeah i mean <laughs> they, they show the dictionary definition at the very beginning right like but that's it's the very first shot but like it's not something you think to that you need to like read when you think of at the time yeah at the because i mean at that time in the early 90, 90s it's kind of like when they started using like autism as a thing in movies like the way they portrayed autism is as if you're like a mute or something 
Right. Um, but then it's I like think sometimes they yeah, like they even like add like some like scoliosis type of behaviors as well to but autism. But it's just to me, I thought narcolepsy was just like you had a sleeping disorder. Like you, you would automatically just be like knocked out or something. I don't. I know someone who has narcolepsy, but I never really. But I don't think they you haven't experienced it. Yeah, I haven't way. seen it. And plus, they take, they now take medicine for it, so it's like it doesn't happen. But I mean, Mike couldn't. In yeah, in the <laughs> early nineties, he's having these episodes, and and thankfully, most of the time, he's the one that says it. Like he, he's the one that says I have narcolepsy, or people just assume he has narcolepsy. But how would you know? I think everybody knows around him that he does this stuff. I mean, because like that's one of the things that Scott does is anytime he's having issues Scott's like Scott around picks him to up help and him like pick takes him, him, him take him somewhere safe and watch yeah. over him so people know uh, and, and it's interesting that nothing really terrible happens to him because of it until like I guess at the very end yeah possibly it's tough to fully say it's it's weird. Like, yeah, so, I mean, he's in this really unfortunate situation with this uh, very dangerous disease considering his lifestyle and, and being around strangers in close quarters. I mean, that's dangerous in and of itself, but throw on the aspect where you could possibly just fall asleep with the drop of a hat without, you know, realizing that that, and that becomes an extremely dangerous situation. Yeah, and the, it happens when he's at that woman's house where she takes... Mike, Scott, and then there was a third guy. Was that Greg or Gary? That was Gary. Gary, okay. Yeah. And when... Who you don't get to see a whole lot of, but yeah, he's there. We're Um, there together. It's just Mike and that woman. Yeah, it's... And he starts to have an episode while they're together. Yeah, because the woman reminds him of his mom or something about the way she was holding him, whatever it was. And so he passes out. Yeah, so, like, most of his clients, obviously, are are men in this movie. This is, like, the one female, Elena, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, played by Grace Zabriskie. I'm probably mispronouncing that a little bit. Zabriskie? Do you happen to know? From Twin Peaks. Yeah, the mom in Twin Peaks. She's... uh, I don't know her. She's Sarah Palmer in Twin Peaks. correct to me. Um, Also done a lot of other David Lynch stuff, like... Inland Empire, where she got a Stinkers Award nomination for Most Annoying Fake Accent. <laughs> and she's in, like, five different other 1991 movies. But Twin Peaks. Um, and th- this movie was giving me Twin Peaks vibes. So, like, in the beginning, I was like, this is very David Lynch to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's avant-garde to a degree. And I think I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, first you have, like, absolutely beautiful cinematography. Yeah. Like the the opening credits scene has I don't I don't fully know how they did some of those time lapse shots with I don't know if it's whatever. With the mountains and Yeah. Where the it's like it's so incredibly scene. clear and it's not like stuttering jerky, but these clouds are moving extremely fast over the, the landscapes and mm-hmm. you see just all kinds of different, you know middle middle of the country stuff. Um and then with the 
the barn that yeah like right after the lands yeah like right after the credit it's like with this he's with a client and like as he's climaxing you see this barn drop from the sky out of the sky and, and crash onto the highway below that's a very interesting image yeah <laughs> well because it's not like the train going in the canal or something right yeah it's almost the opposite of that in yeah that. yeah this is you know this is like a, a metaphor i mean they're not gonna do into another metaphor yeah but i just thought that was interesting to see how that happened how i don't know how you would do that like an entire barn crashing onto a highway a very impressive rig off off screen is what it requires yeah i mean all of the highway stuff is interesting too because it's i don't know if they actually blocked off a road i don't know if they built a road and then did some i feel like backdrops because we've been to south dakota and we've been on long roads where there's no one around i feel like that was uh just like a rural idaho mountainous region road that was isolated enough where there's not many cars going by could be i don't know whatever it was it looked fascinating and they found you know like the perfect little spot um that keeps popping up over and over again so i mean they just needed a, a day or two or whatever to get that done i guess but you know there's several different scenes that take place along that same stretch of highway but I'd say the vast majority of the movie happens in Portland, and then you know at some point we can we can talk about the plot all we want, but it's it's tough to make full sense of some of it. Like partly because it's the Henry the Fourth things, and and a lot of that doesn't really it kind of doesn't matter. Right? Like, stuff the, like the Bob and like... the Scott stuff, like it it definitely has a payoff, but it goes on for a long time. And they spend a long time with, like, the, the heist of Bob and his crew where they're going to, like, rob some people. Yeah, at the, at night. I was like, why? What is the point of this? <laughs> I think it's honestly just to have that, that parallel. I guess. It, it was so just... if you know the play, then, like, you know that beat I just things. don't know the play at all. I just... I had to look it up. Like, what's this play about? <laughs> but it also helps ex- help Scott expose Bob for the liar that he is. Bob and a couple other people come in pink robes and they pretend to be religious and then they rob some drunks with a gun uh, to steal whatever. And then Mike and Scott, who are supposed to be with them, decide to play their own trick and they rob Bob and the crew. Scare them away and then they get all the, the drugs and cash or whatever it is. And then the next day... Bob's talking about this thing. It's like, oh my gosh, there were like 16 men who ambushed us and I, I was able to, you know, beat some of them up and whatever, but, you know, there's just too many and I had to run away. And his story keeps changing and Scott's just out. It's like, well, first he said it was two people. Now it's four. Now it's nine. Now it's 16. Wow. Like, amazing. And, like, everybody's laughing at Bob now. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's partly just like, but that's a very long way around for something that, doesn't fully matter in that way um because scott's gonna get his comeuppance with the inheritance and he turns his back on bob at the very end no matter what um you know because now he's blending in with society he has a 
a girlfriend, he has a suit, and, you know, now he's left that world behind. He's used them, and he's done. And, yeah, so then Bob's there. And, and turned away, and then dies in a next scene. Bob and Scott are not the main thread. It's supposed to be Mike's story. And... I don't remember where the first little clue comes from. Obviously, he's obsessed with his mother and his home because he doesn't remember either of them all too clearly. Mm -hmm. At some point, he's told that his mom might be in Idaho. But I don't remember how that all sparks. I don't know if it was through Scott, because that's when Scott takes him. But I don't know if it was because Mike told Scott to take him. <laughs> uh, that, that's, um, I th- can't remember. I think it was when they were still in Portland and they were riding around on the motorcycle and I thought Scott said something about your mom's in Idaho, but I, I don't know if he knew because, like, his father... I don't know who would be searching... Or was it just that he was, like, talking about things and he's like, you know what, I'm... Let's let's try to let's resolve this. Let's go see my brother. Yeah. Because he went. He, he's supposed to go see his brother's house. Mm-hmm. Like he eventually goes, to, and there's like bad blood between him and his brother. So he's like he's been avoiding that. Obviously, he's like a complete, I don't know, runaway orphan, whatever it is. But he does know his brother. He knows where the brother lives, and he decides to go see them. I just don't remember if it was just simply okay. Mike and Scott I talking wanna go and saying, s- yeah, okay, I w- let's just let's fix this yeah, for you I or what? Go, yeah. I want to go find my mom. So his brother lives in Idaho, so they got to go visit his brother in Idaho Yeah. first. Uh, and it's interesting, like, little touches in, in that sequence. So they take the motorcycle there, and there's a sign off the side of the road that says, Warning to tourists, do not laugh at the natives. I don't know if you saw that. Mm. There's, like, a little sign off the side of the road. Mike runs away thinking he's in trouble because I think the bike is he has trouble like starting it sometimes and that's when they like like, camp out I remember Mike running away specifically because he thought he was going to get caught with something so maybe he had something on him well maybe they always do have something on them or maybe it's just because it's a cop and he he's like let me get as far has sex for money and he's like worried about anything yeah I don't know I don't like it. We've, I don't know. We watched this like a few days ago and this is already like <laughs> jumbled in our minds. They get to the brother's house. I guess we should well, really, the, honestly, we should talk about the, the camping house. scene is like the most poignant part, which is when I was reading the trivia about it, this was the last scene that was filmed. And also, River Phoenix took charge of this whole narrative of the scene where Mike is confessing his love to Scott and Scott is just like basically I'm only gay for pay. Well it wasn't even just that. I mean he he basically said well I don't think a man can love another man. Like he said it in those terms. He's like but he like, was I like a, I don't know if like I only not even like with men yet. for money. But he's like well I don't know if a man can even love another man. 
Like, is that even possible? Like, I, I've mm. never even thought about that as a possibility. Um, and he's like, I only sleep with men to get paid. Right. And, and at this point, I mean, it's tough to know if Mike was the same or not. Because it seems like a lot of the kids, especially from the interviews, are that way. Yeah, that... They're doing it just to get Out of money, and that's how they live their lives, just to get food or drugs or whatever they want. But I think just of how Scott treats Mike, he's just like, oh, I'm in love with this person because he, the way he helps me out whenever... Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna bind. I think I love this person. They're but definitely even, presented as like best friends. Yeah, and so like it's it's natural. To Mike make that is extension. starting to have feelings. Just maybe how Scott acts, his character is because he's just kind of like a I don't give a shit type of vibe because he knows he can't get arrested or whatever because of his father. And Mike probably looks at him as, like, look up to him, maybe? I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then the way that Scott is always there for him when he's having his episodes and, like, picks him up and takes him to safety, it's just like, oh, I think I'm in love with this person. And, but when it gets to, like, when they go to Italy, you can, he, you can tell that he's just getting jealous too because Scott is now falling in love with this Italian woman and they're being like very PDA and Mike is just very turned off by it but I don't know if it's just because oh he's losing his best friend to a woman or if he's losing the love of his life I mean it's he like Scott is the only person to ever show any love towards him right. or any care I guess when he's in Italy it just he sees Scott pulling away because now Scott's in love with this woman there's parts of this script that I wish were less vague and this is this is one of them because like you said when when they're in Rome I you can definitely see some of the jealousy in there but I wonder also like, we know that Mike is basically alone mm -hmm. at this point. And he's in a foreign country where he doesn't know the language. And his sole purpose is to be there to find his mother, who is not actually there. She was there, and then... But left the woman, a while. Yeah, left along. And then the young woman who was there, Carmela was like oh yeah she was here but she went back to the united states but wouldn't they just at that point that's when i think scott is starting to fall in love with carmella so mike is like now i'm stuck here and all i want to do is find my mom and you are falling in love with this person in front of me and i don't want to be near it yeah, too much of it is nonverbal. I think yeah, we yeah, need, yeah. I, I like think he's we need not... a little bit more words. I think we need some confrontation between Mike and Scott to, to understand. When like... it comes to the point, there is no confrontation. It's just kind of like Scott's like... Here's some money, get out of here. 
Yeah, Scott, finally, I don't know how long they were in Italy, because when they find out about, when Mike finds out that his mom's there, wouldn't he just be like, oh, okay, let's go back. But they end up staying for I don't know how long. I mean, Scott has control of the cash. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but like, again, it's like, all that's, to Scott. that's not verbalized. Yeah. But then Scott's like, I'm in love with Carmela, and I'm going back to the United States. Here's money. You can do whatever you want. Like, he doesn't even say, let's all go back together. Yeah. He doesn't care anymore. Yeah. Like, the, this is this is the big turning point for, for but then Scott. Where he when he's, yeah, when he's realizes, in Rome. Oh, hey, I, I can leave this world behind now. I think that's the reason why they left is because he found out his father died. And he gets the inheritance. He's like, oh, well, I'm going to That's probably take... why he came back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... Um, and then he's like, here's some money to Mike. I'm leaving. Goodbye. That, that was like their goodbye. Or his goodbye to Mike. Yeah, it wasn't... Um, it wasn't heartbreaking. Not really. Because then Mike is... He's on the streets of Rome for like a day or so. And then he just goes back to Portland all of a sudden. Like, you just see him in Portland after... A couple days. And he's back to being, like, on the streets with, like, Bob and other people. Yeah. I I wonder if, because they shot that scene last. Because they didn't know exactly what the content was going to be. If that's why some of the other movie scenes do not land. Does not have the same wait because there's nothing to call back to there's nothing to, to build off of nothing to reference you know because <clears throat> my understanding is that not only was it shot last it was also written last mm-hmm. with heavy heavy influence from river himself mm-hmm. um so it's really hard to build some of these Scenes that are meant to be emotionally like wrenching, that are meant to be like in love with someone else. If you don't not... have that backbone in place yet, when you're shooting it, you know how can you yeah. have Scott and Mike confront each other about something that nobody on set knew yet? Knew would be like this is where the narrative is gonna go. Yeah, and then because yeah, when he's back, he's just back on the streets of Portland, and he does he's just not um like he doesn't look like he lost a love or a friend like he wasn't grieving i don't know but maybe that's like his own way maybe that's just his own way of grieving because he's had he's just used to it because you know his mom left and he's got like a shitty older brother and they weren't actually together either yeah it's, it's more like an unrequited love it's a unfulfilled crush type yeah. of situation so maybe it's easier for him to get over that um and he still has his the other teens on the street with him like you got gary and uh i know bud like who's flea yeah bud played by flea you got some other names in there too but i don't remember who they are exactly there's like, like digger, digger and hans i was well hans to... is the um the german the yeah fellow. we never even got to hans because... we haven't talked about the brother we haven't talked about hans um and there's a couple other like 
filmmaking things I want to quickly touch on too. Okay. So let's talk really quickly about these other characters though. So we, we glance over the brother who lives in Idaho, gives him the clue of where the mom is, saying that actually she moved to Italy. Here's the proof, like here's this thing. But there's a very confusing scene dialogue that I still don't know is true and I'm not sure if we're supposed to know which way is true where they have this big confrontation Mike and the Richard. brother Richard um, first off those paintings in the house are super creepy yeah, Richard is a <laughs> Richard is painter a painter and for... sometimes people don't collect and he keeps them he and keeps they them and they're like weird of, they're like family portraits so he has paintings of other families on yeah. his wall um but anyway it looks like he's living in a trailer alongside an actual house and not in an in a house so i don't know what that's about but i thought he was just in a trailer home but it looked like there was a house that, like near it like he was in the driveway of a house living in a trailer okay but they talk about mike's mom he says that she was also a hook you know she also hooked that she fell in love with some a sex worker that she that, that she fell in love with some sort of asshole uh who manipulated her in some way and then he and that shot himself your and father. then she ran away and that that guy was the father mike says don't bullshit me you are my father but then you are actually my father you can't fucking lie to me and he's like, you know too much. And then he goes and gets this thing. He's like, okay, here's where your mom is. So they never like go confirm into, like, whether or not it is a brother or a father or why so he would think that. Is Mike, like Mike is quote unquote a brother. Like they pr are probably not related at all. And the brother quote unquote it was just living with the mom because the mom you know was also a sex worker but was the was richard also just kind of well that's the, that's the thing like it's it's so confusing to me because mike says that richard is his father but yeah th that's but and then Richard doesn't like dispute it exactly. But he says he you says, know you, too you much. You know too much, and that's Which, probably confirming. Like, it's how do you know? Confirming. How do you know that? But I mean, through Mike living with them and his memories. But he didn't live with them all that long. Like he, like he's, yeah, he's trying to. He was like a piece, toddler. Yeah, he was trying like to two piece, years old when his mom left. Yeah, he's trying to. Well, then he had to live with his quote unquote older brother Richard. So, so like know. through it's... his memories or as a child, he probably put things together, and Richard is actually his father. This is this is what I'm saying though. Like it's just it's. More confusing than it needs to be. Okay. With no clarification. Because they... Yeah, they don't go back to it. Right. Like, I'm okay with vagities. I'm okay with, like, um, unanswered questions in certain circumstances. Like, the ending. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Like, I'm, I'm cool with the way it actually fully ends. But stuff like this. Don't present, like, these weird possibilities to us <laughs> and then like and then leave it and then open leave for it us to interpret it. when it 
Yeah, I get it. It doesn't, it, like, that doesn't matter to us in a way, but it still makes us, like, wonder. Whereas at the ending, it works under multiple situations. This kind of doesn't work. It changes the dynamics if it's his actual brother or his father. So that is important for us to know from a character development standpoint. And maybe that's where, like, the three scripts can combine into one story kind of uh, got a little bit too muddled. Or maybe there's people who are listening to this yelling at their <laughs> screens or whatever saying, you know, how dare you miss this vital piece of information, you you know, and maybe we did miss something. That's why I was looking up in, like, Reddit boards about these things, mm. <laughs> but I didn't really... Didn't see anything specific? Yeah. Um, but let's also talk about Hans. So, we talked about Elena who is the one female client mm -hmm. who brings the three guys not to be all together is a foursome, but like one at a time. She yeah. like just likes to have, you know, uh, a uh, revolving door whatever, <laughs> yeah. uh, for a night. And Hans is there to help drive people home. He's like friends with Elena, understands the whole situation. And they sort of take him up on it, um, and he's gone for a while. But then when they're in Idaho, they go to this hotel. Sorry, that's that's actually what the brother leads them to, is this hotel in Idaho, yeah. saying this is where she works. She works at, at a, as a maid, but then that's when they find out that she went to Italy. Like yeah, the hotel people, people say, oh yeah, no, she people. left, she's in Italy now, here's the address that she gave us. Mm. But when she when they're at the hotel in, in Idaho, Hans is there. Mm -hmm. They just happen to run into him. And they have a fun little encounter in Hans's hotel room. I mean, yeah, and then they prostitute themselves to him because the money that they use from Hans is when they go to Italy. Yeah, they right? sell the motorcycle to get the money for the plane ticket. Yeah, so they just need money to go to Italy. So, yeah, and this is when they're in the hotel room and River Phoenix or Mike is washing up and Hans is asking him what he wants to eat. Mm -hmm. And he wants four orders of fries. Extra crispy. Like four plates it. of... Four portions of French fries, extra crispy. Um, and then Han, Hans performs this his like cabaret act while holding his big ass lamp underneath act, his chin yeah. instead of like you know like a flashlight, which I guess is something that Udo Kier, who plays Han, Hans, um, did in real life, and he just sort of recreated it here, but just with a giant ass lamp instead of a flashlight. Yeah, because that <laughs> song, Mister Clon, he has two songs on. The, I, I was looking at the soundtrack, and. There's two. One is called Mr. Klein, and I think that was the song that he was singing for them for that. What was the other one? The called? other one is called Der Adler. So I don't I know. I think it's Der Adler. Der Adler. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But either way, um, it, it was actually a pretty fun song and sequence to listen to. It was. This is where I was like, <laughs> I'm getting. David it's, Lynch. It's vibes. also Twin Peaks. Yeah, Twin Peaks. Because I'm like, what the fuck's yeah. going? On? But yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm entertained, but I'm like, what's going on? And then shortly after that, you get one of the things that I want to talk about with the in terms of the filmmaking. Mm -hmm. um, the first sequence where you see a series of stills 
quote-unquote, oh, okay. um, acting as a montage of their three-way. Yes. Um, where they're not exactly stills. You, you can see, like, slight motions and jiggles. Everyone's basically just, like, freezing stop. themselves kind in, of like pla- a in place. Kind of like motion, but not really. <laughs> yeah. So, like, the frame is not frozen, but they have, they're not actively moving. It's yeah. meant to be like a yeah. You can you get the picture like you can see like the little shakes because they and don't shimmies. show the act of sex like at all in this movie except for maybe when Mike is getting a blowjob from a guy but they don't really show the guy going down on him. You they just, show the yeah they show Mike's reaction his reaction to a man and, and the guy coming up after yeah so we don't actually see the physical acts so like when they this is like. Gus's version of this is they had sex, yes, but we're gonna see a bunch stills of, yeah, of naked of, bodies because he does it again with Carmela, with Carmela and Scott when they mm-hmm. first sleep together. Yeah, it's like it's like the type of poses you see in, like, in, I don't know, like in a modern art museum or something. Where it's just like head on chest or something. Yeah, it's like it was Keanu's head on Carmela's chest, and then the next one is them like strategically intertwined when he's because they're not mm-hmm. really showing like her boobs. Or they do though. They do, but like during that part, they they just like side boob or whatever. It's, it's like, all quick cuts. They're like tastefully art photography right whatever's <laughs> I don't know yeah. what I'm trying to say but it's it's an interesting tactic and again it sort of like just leads to the uh, the creativity of, of the overall picture that mm-hmm. you know just adding a little bit of, of flair to it I think it was a lot better than what we saw with Sam and Barry's where you have like the right that's <laughs> when it's like a full night of them arguing with each other right it's just like slow fades to darkness and yeah different positions in the room it's the same type of thing but this is obviously more effective and what it's trying yeah, to it's get kind across. of like it looks like someone's taking a photograph of them right and which which is interesting because the other thing i want to talk about in terms of the filmmaking is the magazine cover rack yeah. uh, which is something that happens a little bit early in the movie you see when they introduce scott they talk about him and how he's going to inherit this money or whatever. And then you see Scott on the cover of a magazine talking to you. Mm. And he's saying, yes, I am going to inherit a lot of money. And he's just talking about his history and why he's doing this and so on and so forth. And then other magazine covers on the rack also get involved. It's yeah, kind of like a Muppet like... Show type of a scenario in a way. Yeah, and they're all um, like pornographic magazine covers. Yeah, it's all like men's men's nudie mags. Geared, yeah, geared towards like just naked men on covers and so all of these people are talking to each other it's like oh you got the, you know you got this coming to you and they're yeah. like oh blah, blah blah and they're just like shooting the shit and that's that's such an interesting scene because obviously right now in this day and age it'd be super easy to accomplish that yeah with like a you can do like a green screen or yeah or just like a bunch of like people cut and that... paste just plop the image into their have a little text overlay and you're good Back then, though, <laughs> like that's that's uh, I mean, it, it, there's there's some mastery that's going on there that kind of gets lost over time, mm-hmm. where you have to like, I think what they did, 
I could be wrong, but I think what they did was they had some sort of um, it was like, like a, a plexiglass like, like overlay to indicate like the magazine cover. Yeah, text and it was like a life size version of these. And then they had to, like, magazine covers. I think I think what really makes it interesting is like the slow zoom out to show the other different magazine yeah, with covers. Them interacting with each other. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the part that's really surprising and, and you know especially in an indie movie like this yeah because that requires like budget planning and possible special effects like compositing and everything so yeah anyway very very interesting sequence and i was probably more blown away by what was going on on the screen that i didn't fully pay attention all the to time what they were saying <laughs> that the magazines were talking to each other about it was just all of the men commenting on Scott saying, "Oh, well, why are you doing this?" Then? Yeah, it's like, "Oh, hey, do you need uh, like a sugar daddy or whatever? Mm-hmm. Like, can you be my sugar daddy?" Um. Anyway, so yeah, it, the, the mom is not in Italy. We never actually see the mom. The trail basically goes cold, so he's back in Portland, and now he's just back to his old things. Um, Scott returns, he turns his back on Bob, Bob dies shortly thereafter, Jane, who's like the hotel housekeeper, who's like 90-something years old, and I think this is like her only performance in a movie. She's not a great actress, but... um, The mom, yeah. Yeah, Jane, like whoever, like the housekeeper is at the hotel, Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, And then you see like competing funerals, where you have the one for Scott's dad, and then Bob's Bob, yeah. in the same cemetery, but obviously very different crowds. And Bob's is much, much louder and, you know, on the edge of the cemetery. Yeah, they all see Scott and they're yeah. like, let's make a scene. I, yeah, I don't know if it's, I don't know if they're like trying to specifically compete well, I at feel first, like but maybe they Mike are. looks over and I think Mike starts to go over the top too because you see him looking at scott and scott looking over but not really reacting yeah he's almost like oh these stupid kids right even though he knows who they all are but now he's past it he's he's right grown up he's grown out of that phase and um i don't know it's just a very nice scene in a weird way yeah uh to, to see them all just come together after all this uh, and then shortly after that, you see Mike, Mike back on the back highway, on the, the same stretch, and he collapses again, and uh, he gets robbed by a passing car. And then another car comes by, picks him up, and puts him in. You see, have a nice day, and then the credits roll. Yeah. So it could be very ambiguous as to like who is that a helpful up? car? Is that a hurtful car? Yeah. Is that Scott, since or, he's always there? Yeah, is it Scott? And then I always, and then I thought, like, is it Hans? <laughs> yeah, is it Hans? Um, I, I, my personal interpretation is that I think it's Scott. Positive. I don't know if it's Scott, but I think it's oh. a positive helping hand. That's what I thought too. And but I think, it would have been interesting. I know. I, it, I like to how think they that keep it the first car robs him and then leaves yeah right and but this, this one like picks him up and takes him away yeah um and every time that's happened it's been okay mm-hmm. so 
that's what I that's what I'm choosing to believe is that it's a positive thing. But it could honestly just be that positive is a double-edged sword because positive probably means that he's being brought back to Portland to continue the cycle. Yeah. So. But yeah, it, it's great that it's ambiguous like that. Yeah. So, so yeah. on and so forth. Oh, oh, we watched this on VHS. We didn't talk about the previews beforehand, but we did. <laughs> we'll talk about that again after the movie like we have been. Um, we Where had two we previews. Doing now? Yeah. So we, we had two previews. One was for Night on Earth, which we already covered. That was an interesting trailer to see. Well, because you thought this it was going to be for a shitty movie, like the very beginning. Yeah, because like... it's, it's the Tom Waits song, and you just like hear the first little like hints of Oompa with the world, and you're like, all right, mm-hmm. this is going to be like some shitty, like, I don't know. Also, some I thought this comedy. was like a 1992 thing, so I thought it was going to be like a different... And then... I wasn't expecting something we've seen. Yeah. Um, but it was Night on Earth. And then after that, you have uh, The Rapture with David Duchovny, which is presented as like some sort of like spiritual, extraterrestrial, spooky. Whatever. Yeah, it looks interesting, actually. Uh, it is on our list, so we'll probably. I, I think I think it got some independent awards. Um, I think it's supposed to be somewhat re- well regarded, so uh, we will hopefully get to that. But that was the first experience I've ever had with what the Rapture actually is in terms of a movie. So, yeah, that was what was on the like VHS. the ra- like the Christian Rapture. No, no, like, yeah, the movie. Oh, I thought you meant like the actual any... Rapture of like what will happen. I've like, never seen any in stills terms of Christianity. Or video oh, okay. clips of the nineteen ninety one movie The Rapture. Until I've never now. even heard of it <laughs> until seeing this. Yeah. So. Um, we'll get into cast and crew and then we'll talk about awards here um, most of them we can kind of bypass because we've talked about them before River Phoenix we talked about in Bo- Dogfight Keanu Reeves we talked about in Bill and Ted Bogus Journey and Point Break uh, Flea we talked about in Motorama we talked about Udo Kier during Europa that's the main crux we already talked about Elena in here so how about Gus Van Zant, the director, writer and also the man behind the hotel counter as a little cameo he has an Oscar nomination for Goodwill Hunting and also for Milk. Uh, a Cannes Award winner for Elephant for directing and also the Palme d'Or. And also a win for Paranoid Park. Uh, he also has a win for the 60th Anniversary Prize. I don't, uh, I don't know what that means, <laughs> but that was something. Also, he has Palme d'Or nominations from Cannes for his movies Last Days, uh, Paranoid Park, Sea of Trees. Spirit Award winner for the screenplay for Drugstore Cowboy, nominated for directing that. Also nominated for directing Jerry, Elephant, Paranoid Park. Razzie Award winner for Psycho. I'll talk about that more in just a second as well. Um, in 1991, he did the video for Tommy Conwell and the Young Rumblers, and also a video for William Burroughs. He's also done others, you know, aside from the, the main movies we talked about already, he also does several music videos, including David Bowie's Fame. In 1990, Elton John's last song, um, Stone Temple Pilots, he did a video for Creep. Uh, He also did, with Flea, uh, the Under the Bridge video for um, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Peppers. I was like, Flea only? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, just Flea. Just Flea's parts. But that's what it was like, what? (laughs) And then I think the other major notable one that we haven't talked about before, aside from even Cowgirls Get the Blues, is uh, To Die For. Um... 
I want to talk about Psycho because I thought it was really interesting. This is the only time we're going to talk about Ghost of Van Sant. Apparently, like, you remember that whole big deal with, like, him doing the shot-by-shot remake of Psycho. I guess. I never watched his version of Psycho because I was like, eh. <laughs> It's like, why? Why does it exist, right? Yeah. And apparently that, like, that was his point. Oh. Like, he kind of made that because once he got the credentials from Goodwill Hunting, the studios finally let him do this project that he was trying to get off the ground, which was, in essence, to try to get studios to stop doing remakes. It's kind of like sabotaging from within. Oh. Was the intention, like, well, why do you he knew like it was going yourself? to fail. But why? I mean, he can do whatever he wants. Like, he, he, didn't, <laughs> he didn't suffer. Like, he, okay. he still did Milk. He still did, like, Elephant Paranoid, all these other things that went on to great acclaim. Like, the point was, you know, like, if you're going to remake a movie, why do you think you can do it better than the person who did it before? Right? Okay, so, so he's like, just I'm, do it shot by shot. This I'm is my pitch to you. the world. <laughs> well, but also, yeah, like, troll the world and also just kind of prove that, hey, yeah, this doesn't work. That doesn't matter. Here's another director who has great acclaim doing the exact same shots as someone else. And guess what? It didn't work. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the shots. There's something else intangible about it, right? It's like this great experiment to show, you know, it's sort of like the whole concept of however many monkeys in a room writing a Shakespearean play. There's more to it than that. It's not, so like he, he basically proved his own point, but it was a very expensive one at the studio's expense. So interesting story behind that whole thing. Um, other people I want to talk about here, we got Richard Waters, who played the brother. That's played by James Russo. Sorry, Richard Waters is the character. James Russo is the actor. He was in 1991's Kiss Before Dying. He was in Cold Heaven and Intimate Stranger. Also in 1991, he's in one episode of Gabriel's Fire. Uh, he went on to do things like Django Unchanged, uh, Django Unchained, the Vegas TV show, and then also Donnie Brasco. Bob Pigeon, we talked about before. Uh, William Reichert, Reichert, I think it's Reichert. Uh, not primarily an actor, mostly a writer-director of things such as Winter Kills, Amer- American Success Company, A Night in the Life of R- Jimmy Reardon, which starred Phoenix, uh, River Phoenix, and you know that's partly why he got the role as Bob, is because of his connection to River from that movie. And then he passed uh, back in July of 2022. Uh, Gary was played by Ronnie Harvey. He had a, a couple scenes, but didn't have a whole bunch to do in the plot um but ronnie harvey was in 1991's la boca he's been in things like return of billy jack spike of bensonhurst twin peaks the outsiders tv show he was a former calvin klein model and he passed away in 1998 from an overdose as well uh carmelo was played by chiara caselli she did a whole bunch of italian and french stuff she's fluent in both of those Languages. She's Venice Award nominated for directing a short film called Molly Bloom in 2016. So, uh, but she was in a couple of other U.S. release things like Sleepless and Ripley's Game. And then we have the music, which I think was really good. We didn't talk about that a whole lot either. You have like these warped renditions of like America the Beautiful and some of these mm-hmm. other standards in here. That was done by Bill Stafford. Um, which is interesting because he did not did not have a whole lot of credits. This was his last credit. He was primarily an orchestrator in the 1960s, uh, largely uncredited back then for things like Hootenanny Hoot, 
Fastest Guitar Alive for singles only. And then he also had uh, done some work for 1981's Tarzan the Ape Man. So, interesting choice, but it really worked out well. And then we have two cinematographers credited, which is kind of unusual. And they were nominated for the Spirit Award for this movie, for Best Cinematography. John J. Campbell, who did work for Malanoche, Even Cowgirls Get Loose, Imaginary Crimes, and Rough Magic. And also Eric Allen Edwards, who did the Under the Bridge video, Even Cowgirls Get Loose, Kids to Die For, Flirting with Disaster, and several Depeche Mode videos. So, uh, last thing I do want to mention is we have a couple cameos. Kind of. We got Brian Wilson as a rock promoter. I don't remember a rock promoter scene. The, there's like several rock promoters, and Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys is one of them. So he's in the movie somewhere. I did not notice him at all. Oh, I don't remember that scene. Maybe it was cut. Or it was just a flash in the pan thing. Anyway, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys is supposedly in this movie. Um, and then you have... <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce his name. Jim Caviezel. Oh, Caviezel? Caviezel. Yeah. He's there as an airline clerk. Oh, okay, because I saw him in there. I'm like, oh, the guy who plays Jesus. <laughs> yeah, the guy who plays Jesus in The Passion of the Christ <laughs> is there taking the ticket. He has, like, one line, um, you know, sending them on their way to Rome. This is his film debut, very first role. Uh, but he also has MTV movie nominations for Best Male Performance in Passion of the Christ he also has a People's Choice nomination for his work on Person of Interest, which he's done a million episodes of. Um, but he got his big critical acclaim from The Thin Red Line. He's also done in uh, movies such as Frequency, Digstown, and Wyatt Earp. So, another first first film of a, of a famous person. Uh, in terms of movie awards, at the Venice Film Festival... It won the Best Actor for River Phoenix. Uh, it also was nominated for Golden Lion, which uh, I think is basically like 20 different films were nominated for that. Uh, a movie called Close to Eden won that instead. At the Spirit Awards, it won for Best Screenplay, Best Actor, uh, and also Best Music for Bill Stafford. Nominated for Cinematography, Director, and Picture. So there we go. to true crime and pop culture. This movie was released on September 4th, 1991, which was a Wednesday. And then I'm gonna go into a little bit about the soundtrack, cause we did, you talked about the score mainly. Right. But the soundtrack had the two Udo Kier songs, but then it had, I'm gonna talk about River Phoenix. Okay. I'm just gonna go into like his death because we didn't. I didn't. I wanted to do it in dogfight, but I'm like, I'll just do it for this episode because we're not gonna talk about him anymore. Right. Um. He was in. He was a musician, so he was in a band with his sister called Aleka's Attic, and they have a song on the soundtrack, and it was playing during certain parts of when they were in the diner. So there, like the first time they show them in the diner, it's like Madonna's playing because I know it was like Cherish in the background. And then like, and then there was an Elton John song, but some point when they were in the diner, it's his band song called "Too Many Colors," 
And this, they were formed in 1987 in Florida, but they didn't release an album, but it had a lot of, did you ever see the movie? Probably not. (laughs) Did you ever see the movie Thing Called Love? No. (laughs) Okay, because that's where... So it was River Phoenix. I was obsessed with that movie because another thing is I was obsessed with River Phoenix when I was younger. So I I tried to watch like everything River Phoenix was in and he was, his last credited movie, well, because he was in a movie after that, but the last movie that he was in that was released was called The Thing Called Love, which is about these country singers that want to make it big in Nashville Mm. and that's I was obsessed with that movie it and that's where um he met his girlfriend at the time Samantha Mathis the thing that he did in that movie was him because he is a musician and he does a lot of like I don't want to say it's like folksy country type music okay and that's what this Aleka's Aleka's Attic. It's A-L-E-K-A. I want to say Alexa, but it's Aleka. Right. So then I'm just going to get into the death of River Phoenix. So in late October 1993, it was October 30th, 1993, River was in L.A., for the week because he was filming something in New Mexico and he went on to go to the Viper Room which is partially was partially owned by Johnny Depp but after you know the death of River Johnny Johnny Depp like sold his share because he didn't want to deal with like his death he was with his girlfriend Samantha and his brother Joaquin. His Joaquin was like nineteen at the time. River was twenty three when he died. Huh. And then his sister Rain, who was in the band with him, that Aleka's attic. So Phoenix was supposed to perform that night, and he was in a band. Have you ever heard of the band that Johnny Depp was in? Probably. It's called P. It's just the letter P. Oh, no. And River Phoenix was supposed to perform with Johnny that night. And the band P had the singer from Butthole Surfers, Gibby Mm. Haynes. It was Johnny Depp who did the guitar and bass. And then sometimes uh, Flea was in it. And then it had someone else from Red Hot Chili Peppers. And then there is another actor by the name of Sal Jenko. It's just like this mishmash of actors, musicians playing in a band. I think they had like one album that was released in 1995. And their major single that came out or was popular was the song called Michael Stipe. And they were friends with Michael Stipe, so it wasn't like making fun. I don't, I don't know the lyrics to it. Okay. Maybe if I find it online or something. Phoenix was to perform with the band P. The band had. They were 
going to in the middle of playing the song Michael Stipe Phoenix was outside and Samantha this is what Samantha has said she saw River Phoenix with an unknown man and they were talking in a corner and it looked like they had a little tiff or something and that's when River Phoenix went outside of the venue and he was having seizures on the sidewalk and that's when people were being called over to him. Samantha was there and it was, um, the band was playing at the time. They had to like stop them from playing and then everyone rushed outside. By the time that they called for paramedics, the paramedics arrived on the scene and they found that River Phoenix was already turning blue and he was like suffering from a cardiac arrest. They administered medicine to him to restart his heart. So when he, but when he arrived at the hospital, he went to Cedars Sinai Hospital in LA. They, he also he lost consciousness again. They attempt to resuscitate him, but that was unsuccessful. And he was pronounced dead at 1.51 a.m. on the morning of October 31st, 1993. And he was 23. But the aftermath, this is now going to the article with Samantha Mathis that during her relationship she had always she said that she had always known him to be a sober person because he was very like into veganism and like very like a kind of like what Joaquin Phoenix is doing now Mm. with just activism and stuff like that so she didn't know anything was going on she said with him but when I was reading other stuff when he was he was with Prior to being with Samantha Mathis, he was with Martha Plimpton, and Martha Plimpton said they broke up because of his drug reuse. But And then I saw that um, he did drugs sometimes, so he wasn't like an active addict? I don't know. But Mathis went... I mean, it, she adds that the heroin that killed him didn't happen until he was in the Viper room because she doesn't think... She thought whoever that man that he was having a scuffle with was the person that gave him the drugs. Following his death, the club became like a shrine. I kind of remember this. The Viper room became a shrine to River Phoenix where fans would come over and leave flowers and everything. And that's when Johnny Depp close down he would close down the viper room on october 31st of every year until he sold his share in the early 2000s the autopsy report finalized that he had high concentrations of morphine and cocaine in his blood as well as other substances in smaller concentrations the cause of death was acute multiple drug intoxication and then on November 24th, 1993, his mother, River uh, Arlene Phoenix, published a letter to the LA Times on her son's life and death. Do you know anything about their life? 
like no I don't okay really. <laughs> so like river well the phoenix family they grew this is i don't know if i should even go into it because this is like a whole other thing but they grew up like in a religious cult called the children of god and river it's like fucked up what happened to the phoenix children because river says that he quote unquote lost his virginity at the age of four because he was sexually assaulted okay so it's like it it's like a fucked up cult that i don't know i don't i'm not gonna get into it but um rose mcgowan was in it too so it's like they've spoken against this before but so like their mother i mean they left the commune i don't i didn't get into that because it was like a whole thing about their family she just states that the same thing that like what samantha mathis said that she didn't know her son to be as like a drug addict and before his death like phoenix image was like squeaky clean he didn't do anything he was very private too so it wasn't like he was out as seen as like a partier right which is what everyone you know was starting to speculate because he od'd at a club right. so they expect they thought of him as being like this bad boy partier but that's why his mom wrote this letter saying you know he was nothing like that it's just like this shitty thing that happened to him on this night phoenix's was cremated and his ashes were scattered and where his family ranches which is in florida another person that you already spoke about i tried to find stuff on rodney harvey because i saw that he also died of an overdose but i couldn't find much like all the articles that had stuff about him were like behind a paywall or they weren't available anymore so the only information that I found about Rodney Harvey and his death was that during the making of My Own Private Idaho, that's when he started to use heroin. And then he had several stints of going to jail. He attempted to go clean, but he died of a heroin and cocaine overdose in April 11th, 1998 at the Hotel Barbizon in LA. And then after his death, a photo of him of heroin addiction appears in the Office of Drug Control Policy. So, like, for, you know, the dare. That's why we, we also watched the movie uh, Kid 90, the Soleil Mufry documentary, because he's mentioned in it, but they only show him for, like, one minute. And... It's only so, because there's like a part where Soleil talks about all of her friends growing up that have died throughout the years from like either depression or drugs, and he was one of them, but they only show him leaving a message to her and then like a small, like when she's at a party, he's like in the background. Yeah. So, but they use his face as, like, heroin addiction for, like, you know, dare and stuff like that. Which, I mean, they even show that when Soleil Moon Fry was a teen, 
she had to do all these dare um, campaigns, even though she herself was like doing drugs. Yeah, I mean that's that's not uncommon. People will do what pays the bills, and then right. It's just funny how she showed that, and then she's like, "Yeah, meanwhile, I'm just like." But it, it's just she wasn't as I don't know. She she was just like a carefree teenager that was like, "I want to do what typical." teenagers do and party and drink and do drugs but she wasn't like a quote addict right meanwhile yeah Rodney Harvey becomes like the poster boy for yeah addiction afterwards so we'll move on to rankings and ratings uh where on your one to five star scale are you going to put my own private Idaho um I'm going to give this movie a four up to four. I think you've been on a big string of threes for a while. Because everything we've seen has been, like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but that's also good because that means we're not running into a lot of terrible stuff. Uh, on my zero to four star scale... Man. Um, I think right now I'm going to say it's a three. I could be influenced to go up to a three and a half. I don't think I could go farther than that. The Shakespearean stuff, the other muddled plot kind of throws me off. Yeah, the the first half drags, second half is great. They should have just had the second half into a movie. Yeah, combining three scripts into one is probably one too many. Um... Anyway, every movie's worth watching once. Would you watch this again? Um, yeah, but not right away. I would like to see this in a movie theater. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we saw it on VHS, like the worst quality yeah. possible. But still, the cinematography looked amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would as well. I There's probably some aspects that I could pick up on the second time around that I might have missed the first time um, but I mean it's it's an interesting story it's visually amazing it sounds great good acting all around of course but uh, yeah I would definitely need some time in between watchings if you out there want to watch my own private idol as of this recording in May 2023 it's available on digital rental VHS or DVD as always check your local listings you can listen to us on all of your major podcasting platforms. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. Email us at 1991movierewind at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, YouTube. Just search 1991movierewind. Or go to 1991movierewind.com for the full list, of, full list of movies along with show notes and more. Next week, we're watching Poison. That's on Amazon Prime, Canopy, Fandor, Digital Rental, VHS, DVD. We'll see you then.